Well, it's my privilege tonight to introduce Air Commodore Sir Vernon Brown. Many of you will have known him before in some aspect or another because he's been on the scene for a very long time. He learned to fly as early as 1915. Then he joined the Royal Flying Corps and he had lots of duties in one place or another, finishing up commanding the Cambridge University Air Squadron. Then he retired about 1937 from that sort of job and became Chief Inspector of Accidents at the Air Ministry from 1937 to 1946. Then he went to the Ministry of Civil Aviation for another few years. Well, I understand he's going to tell us something tonight about his flying experiences between 15 and 45, and I hope he's going to tell us a little about his experience also as Inspector, Chief Inspector of Accidents. Well, sir, we will now listen to you with great pleasure. These are some reminiscences, and if any of you have heard them before, I ask your pardon for inflicting you with them again. As you've just been told, I learned to fly in 1915. That was in the spring at Brooklands. The aircraft that we used almost exclusively was the Morris Farman Longhorn. We generally called it a rumpety. Oh, no. <laughs> Some of you may remember it. Absolute perfection to fly. If you wanted to know what speed you were travelling at, you had to look partly behind you, look out to the left, because the uh, speed indicator was attached to this outer strut on the far side. And um, there was merely a blank disc and a pointer, which went up to, uh, I think, 80. Its flat-out speed on the speed course was exactly 60. It had a 70 Renault engine, which was extremely reliable. You see, the Longhorns, so-called, because of this, because presently I'll be showing you the Shorthorn, you'll see it's got slightly different uh, front, and the tailplane is different because it's at the bottom instead of the top of the runners. It took roughly three weeks to get through the course, because instructors in those days were very bump-conscious. And if they held up their handkerchief and the thing fluttered out to about 15 degrees, they said it was too windy. And so it was rather a case of coaxing the instructor to take you up at all. One's aim was to take the Aero Club certificate, to do which you had to do two figures of eight at not under a thousand feet, land on the circle after a glide without your engine. I fortunately missed it, but it was astonishing the attraction that the sewage farm close to the railway line had at Brooklands, 
And I often looked at it, look at it now as I pass that way in the train, a sort of nostalgic feeling. From uh, Brooklands, I was sent to Joyce Green, which was in those days on the Erith marshes, with lots of little dikes covered over with uh, duck boarding. There was one hangar on the edge of the river. My instructor was one Archie Knight of Vickers, and uh, he sat on the petrol tank behind me in the Vickers gun bus, with his arm over my shoulder and hand on mine, and he kept up a running conversation of, Left to fool, now pull her up or you'll hit those masts of that wherry, and so on. And it was all very exciting. The uh, gun bus was the Vickers, uh, I forgot it's number 5A, I think. It really was a gun bus, because it was the only machine in those days that could mount a gun in the front cockpit. It had a 100 horsepower monosupart engine, which gave very little trouble. And uh, I remember on my first cross-country, getting to the giddy height of 11,000 feet somewhere over Dover, and uh, being terrified in a half-broken cloud. But we got through it all right, that course there, and the next thing was Uphaven, where the Central Flying School was functioning. The first aircraft I had to fly there was the Morris Shorthorn. You see, as I told you, it's got its elevators down at the bottom of the rudders, instead of at the top like the Longhorn, and uh, otherwise it's very much the same. It's a sweetie to fly. It had also a 70 Renault engine, which gave practically no trouble. You could do anything with it, and to spiral down from about 6,000 feet at about 60 degrees, keeping it steady all the way, was really rather a spe spectacle. I remember once wanting to test an engine to have the machine ready for flying early next morning. And flight sergeant said, no, you can't possibly do that, sir. You see, there's a 40 to 45 mile wind gusting. I said, well, I'll take it up anyhow, because the wind was straight up and down the old sheds at uh, the Central Flying School. I put her up in about 10 yards, I then climbed her at a steady 26 miles an hour. When I was 2,000 feet, we were exactly one mile backwards <coughs> along the road to Everly. I put her nose down, and with the aid of a little engine, landed exactly on the spot they had taken off. An absolute wizard machine. And the next one was the Henry Farman. This was by Maurice's brother, Henri. And you see, it's similar kind of thing, except that it had a big overhang at the wings. The one that I flew first was a warp control, laterally. This one actually has uh, an aileron. There it is, from there to there. But the warp ones, there were numbers of aircraft in those days had warp control. It simply meant that you were pulling the rear spar of the aeroplane up or down instead of an aileron. This one had an 80 clergé. It was a two-seater. And I hope you admire the bicycle wheels. 
And then there was the Moran and the Bleriot. This is the Bleriot monoplane with a 50 gnome engine, similar to the one which Bleriot crossed the channel on the 25th of July 1909. I may say I met Bleriot twice. Brother-in-law of mine flew with him, had actually put the memorial on the downs above the cliffs where he landed at Dover on that memorable occasion. You see, again, the bicycle wheel is pressed into service. Now that is the BE-2A. The BEs were the race of aircraft which were produced by the aircraft factory, known as the RAF, Royal Aircraft Factory, commanded by O'Gorman in those days. And de Havilland had, had an aircraft accepted I think in 1911, and he was taken on there as a sort of freelance design king. The BEs were his. It's, I believe it stood for British Experimental. You notice here that there's no fin, and all the aircraft of those sort of dates you'll notice have got bamboos here to save you from going on your nose or turning right over when uh, you stood on your nose in a, in a breeze, if you hadn't got them. That person in the cockpit is actually Jeffrey de Havilland himself. The engine was a 70 Renault, and afterwards it was changed to the 90 RAF engine, which again stands for the Royal Aircraft Factory engine. That is the sophisticated version which was produced later, which was the BE-2C. And you see that the fin has arrived, to give better lateral stability, he's got a, a dihedral. That is, with a, uh, that is with the 70 Renault, but as I say, there was a 90 RAF engine in it afterwards. It was a splendid machine, and uh, it was one of the most popular and one of the most effective ones of the early days of the First War. 21 hours flying that I did was enough to get me my wings and to have me gazetted as a le second lieutenant in the Royal Flying Corps. Curious enough, I was kept there as an instructor. The reason, I think, was this. It wasn't the normal time for changing instructors, but the Morris Farman flight, known as B-Flight, had had rather a catastrophe. The uh, officer in charge decided to take about half a dozen of his pupils on a cross-country flight, their first cross-countries. He said that he would lead them with another of his pupils as a navigator. And he intended going across to Lark Hill, about 10, 12 miles away, landing there and then sending them back under their own steam, separately. And his last instructions were that they were to take off at one-minute intervals. Well, by extraordinary bit of bad luck, because I say the 70 Renault was the most reliable engine, he got just beyond Netherend and halfway across the alley, and unfortunately for him, not a sufficient height to get along to either side. And uh, suddenly there was a bang, <clears throat> and his comrade came and looked at him through his thumb. So he picked a field 
and did a very good cross landing rather close to the river. He then discovered the trouble. It wasn't a very good field, it was rather marshy. When lo, number one of his pupils who came over, and seeing him down there and having been instructed to follow him, he did so. And the more he was gesticulated at, the more he was certain that he'd found the right field. And then followed number two, and three, and four, and five, and six. That was most unfortunate, because they all had to be taken to pieces and brought back. There was only one casualty, I think one really broken up. Two went into a hedge, and one hit another one, but that was, they were easily repaired. But dear old Godfrey Payne, Captain Godfrey Payne, our naval commandant, came and broke the news to the assistant instructor in the flight. When he heard what had happened, he unfortunately roared with laughter, and so there were two vacancies in the flight the next day. And uh, a very charming fellow named Bust had the flight, and I was point, uh, posted to be the assistant instructor. Well, that was just too bad, but that's how those things happen. In how it happened in those days. Now, shortly after that, news came through, or a reminder came through, that a Frenchman named Pegu, a little sometime before, had looped the loop at Brooklyn. Next weekend, we heard that the CO was going to be away, and so on Sunday morning, about half a dozen of us went up in B2C. All of us got over the top quite easily, first go, and uh, two, two or three times, except one who did a series of remarkable tail slides, and he never looked at all. Well, I don't know whether it was he that was seen by the old man, or quite what, but on Monday morning we were all on the mat, and we were told in no uncertain terms that that kind of flying was jolly bad form and an extraordinarily bad example to set to the pupils. But a little while after that I committed a much worse crime. I had the doctor up with me one day in a Vickers gun bus contest and at about 5,000 feet I got into a spin. In those days spinning was death. Now Three or four of us had discussed this awful problem of spinning, and we'd come to the conclusion that probably the right thing to do was so and so and so, but at least it was worth trying. I immediately centralised the controls, cut my engine, and put her nose down. My heart in my mouth, and she stopped spinning at once. All right, I landed, and the doctor got out, and bless his heart, Instead of leaving it at that, or just telling a few people quietly about it, he went spreading, uh, spreading it abroad that he'd been spun by VB in the Vickers gun bus. Well, then I was on the mat before the old man, and I have never forgotten the dressing down I had. It was the first one I'd ever had. He was a tough naval chap with a very big jaw, and he finished up by crashing his hand down and saying... If you like to kill yourself, the Royal Flying Corps will be a perfectly good machine to the bad. But by God, sir, I'll not allow you to kill my doctor.
Well, it seemed to me that I had found out something by accident which was very important. I therefore went up again the earliest opportunity and tried some more spins. I then did it in the B2C, then did it in Sopwith Pup, we discussed it with the others, and we had marvellous spinning bees away from the aerodrome where we couldn't be seen. Now, there was a journal run by Oliver Stewart called Aeronautics. In the last two numbers, he had persuaded Norman Macmillan to write a longish article about spinning and the history of spinning. And Captain Macmillan said that the first ever controlled spin, according to all the research that he made into this, was by Geoffrey de Havilland in 1914. I've been told only this evening that a man named Park did do what was known as Park's Dive and get out of it, which appears to have been a spin somewhere about 1912, but I should have to have notice of that question before I dealt with it. But according to Macmillan, uh, Geoffrey de Havilland was the first. The second, in 1915, he said was a man, a Pole, named Dybowski, who did it in Poland. And mark you, the date he gave was between August and October 1915. He said the second was a man named Brooke in a naval thing called a spinning jenny. If anybody can tell me what it is, I should be very interested to know, because I've never been able to find out. The third one, see, de Havilland, two, three, the fourth one, sorry, is your humble servant. The fifth, a man named Balcom Brown, who was killed quite shortly afterwards back in France. And the sixth, Kennedy Cochrane Patrick. And the seventh, Nobby Clark. All Clarks were Nobby in those days, probably still are. Now, I dwell on this because this was in 1915. And as Oliver Stewart said in a letter to the Times last September, Lots of people were spinning about the sky in 1916 and even using it as a war manoeuvre. Now, modesty has always prevented me from showing the next two slides and I'm going to put it on tonight because this records an event which happened in 1916 which was long before Lindemann ever flew. That is a Newport Scout. We were asked, three of us, volunteers, to go and try and attack three observation balloons, German observation balloons, which were giving trouble over the, close to the lines. Um, the armament that we, you, we said I used in this machine was three Lepria rockets, which were attached to that wing and three on the other side. Uh, we merely had to aim the aircraft. I mean, there was no, no other means of aiming at anything. And I used the spin to come down from about 7,000 feet to about 600. 
before attacking the dear old observation balloon. And as soon as I got close enough to it, you see, the observer suddenly discovered he was going to be attacked, and he's already got his legs over, hopping out before she went up in flames. Now, I only put that on to show you that it was used as a maneuver. That particular occasion was the 8th of August, 1916. So that I hope that that has laid to rest this ridiculous story that Lindemann, later Lord Charwell, was the first ever spinner, intentional spinner, in this country, because it was said that he not only did it intentionally, but wrote lots of papers about it and taught people how to spin. From instructing, I was translated to the experimental flight which was at Upaven also. From there I made the acquaintance and worked under that dynamic personality, Henry Tizard, later Sir Henry Tizard. He was a wonderful person. He um, set up the speed course at Upaven on what we call the gallops. It was a half mile electrically timed he laid down the principles of how prototype testing should be done, and that became almost my first job. That's how it is that I flew quite a lot of aircraft in those days. We also did bomb sites, bomb racks, gun sites, and any odd things that came that way. I also tested the first Sperry stabilizer in a Morris, uh, a night flying beacon, which was a horrible thing to do because we had no, no illuminated instruments in aircraft in those days. And we also did a bit of bomb work, mostly with the 20 pounder Cooper, which was a small one. Then there was the 112 pounders, which were then being designed, and there was this 450 pounder, which was carried in the RE5 or RE7, the big ones like this one, the RE7. The difference between the 5 and the 7 was that the 7 had a longer upper wing, and what I remember of it, the 120 Beardmore engine was changed to 160. But I'm told that the aircraft also had other uh, engines. This was the CFS staff in the autumn of 1915. And I put it on for this reason. There are people in it whose names are have been forgotten, if indeed they've ever been known. First one you will have known, that was the late Lord Cecil. He was our workshops officer, very good engineer, very good pilot. His number was about 740, I think. He once tried to fly after the war to Australia, and I think the time or sea defeated him and finally fetched up in Japan. It was no mean effort. That second man there is a man named Rose. Will R. Rose and Company photographers, manufacturers of photographic equipment of Oxford and Chester. The dear old Will Rose was fetched in by somebody and he laid the very foundations of aerial photography. 
I left, before I left CFS, we were able to take overlap uh, photographs with his vertical camera and his oblique camera were quite splendid and replaced the old small ones with the only things we had. And I have a very affectionate feeling in my mind, Hero Wilder. Now, in 1912, when the CFS started, from an early photograph, it appears that on the staff was a Mr. Dobson, meteorologist. There is Dobby, as a perfectly good lieutenant in 1915, and he was the meteorological officer, and he made us understand how important meteorology was, was and was going to be in the future, and we could always get a jolly good weather report if we were going on a cross country flight, and his anemometer was a frequent joy to all of us to go out to see what the speed was to know whether it was all right for early flying and early destruction. Captain Payne, RN, afterwards Admiral Sir Godfrey Payne, was the commandant and the assistant commandant Fletcher. This was the dear man who shall be nameless, who did tail slides instead of loops. That is afterwards Sir Henry Tizard. And this was Kennedy Cochran Patrick, one of the first spinners. That was another one, Dobby Clark. And the other one was your humble servant up there looking rather smug. Uh, about this time, DH2, to Haviland 2, broke up in the air. I was very distressed about it because that very morning I had flown that machine for about a couple of hours and had given it an extremely good report. Its climb was good, handling was good, and so on. It was in competition with an aircraft called the FE-8 Fighter Experimental of uh, the factory at Fondra. They both did 94 miles an hour on the speed course and this was the one that was finally adopted and did splendid work in France, the first squadron, the 32 squadron. Um, this broke up and the pilot was a friend of mine and I was put on the court of inquiry. It's very curious that in 19... 12, uh, flight had in um, a summer issue a short report to the effect that there was a very strong feeling that accidents should be properly investigated, particularly all serious accidents. And to that end, uh, a committee was set up called the Safety and Act, Public Safety and Accidents Committee. Now, I do not know whether the services of that committee were ever used by the military, but I rather doubt it. In 1913, the AID came into existence, the Aeronautical Inspection Department. It was commanded by a Major Fulton, who was a gunner, and a very live wire. And somehow or other, accidents seemed to have fallen to his lot. When they started, they were at Farnborough, but in 1915, towards the end of 15, 
his department was moved to number 13 Albemarle Street, where a new organization had come into existence called the um, Military Aeronautics, I think it was. The Department of Military Aeronautics of the War Office. Now, in that department, there was a man named uh, George Coburn. He was a freelance man with money. He had a little aircraft of his own at one time, which I think he had built, and his ticket was number five. George Coburn was sent down to help us in our court of inquiry into this accident. And I remember where he showed us, or we helped him, pull the machine apart and lay it out to the best of our ability. He then discovered that the four bones here had all broken about the same place up here. He then searched to see what it could be and found that it was almost opposite the engine. All the wires here had been cut, all the places wires and those bays, all four places, all four bays. We then he went through the engine carefully, and that is one of the external valves of the clergy, no monastery part type of engine. It had, one of them had fractured close to the crack case. It had then swung out on the rocker arm there, hinged on that, and had swept right round and torn all the cross-bracing wires away, after which the terraplane had failed and all the rooms had failed and uh, it went off in down low. I was very, very impressed indeed with that. To get back to some of the types of those days, that's the de Havilland 1. You see, it's rather like the de Havilland 2, except it's bigger, it's got, it's a two-seater, and it had a, a 70 Renault engine. It was a very nice aircraft to fly. It never went into production because uh, an aircraft from the factory took its place. Uh, we'll come to that one in a few moments. At this time there was a very considerable demand for an aircraft which would carry a bigger load and achieve a longer range. And so twin engine machines were being thought about. That is the DH-3 with 220 Beardmore engines. It was a very nice machine to fly, but it was a bit underpowered. A later version of it, the DH-10, with 260 Beardmores, was put into production, and in 1917, I think, uh, and 18, was um, very largely used as a bomber, fighter bomber reconnaissance. Others were in competition with that. There is the Curtis JN-1. I may say that it was one of the coldest machines I ever flew. As you see, you sat with no protection at all. You merely sat there well and truly up in the air, and the wretched gunner at the back sat there and simply froze. Aerodynamically, it wasn't very good, and it only did about 80 miles an hour anyhow, so we didn't consider it. 
That's an interesting one. It was the twin-engine Vickers. This was the FB-7. Um, FB fighter bomber. It's interesting because it was the first of the Vickers twin-engine aircraft. It had two monosupart engines, and because of the awful torque effect of 200 horsepower, uh, one of those was made to rotate in the opposite direction. I flew it for about five minutes and brought it back and refused to fly it again until I'd had a shield put on it. The two propeller tips were almost exactly 18 inches from one's head and exactly in line with one's head. So that, I mean, it was quite drafty and terrifying because if you put your hand out like that, you were going to have a hat knocked off. It's very curious, isn't it, when you look at a thing like that, sticks and string and so on, to think that it was the forerunner of the Vimy, which made the first crossing of the Atlantic under the command of Alcock and Whitten Brown. And of course the tremendous range of V-types which came afterward. That is one of the very famous aircraft of that day. It is of course the Avro 504K. One of the very best trainers ever. You couldn't mistake it with its single uh, skid right in the middle. The 504N came later and um, had a more conventional undercarriage with two skids. This one had an 80 closure engine. That was the FE2B. You could never mistake one of the RAF engines. I'm still referring not to the Royal Air Force, but to the Royal Aircraft Factory. All of them, Farnborough, had a pointed fin like that. That one had a 140 RAF engine. It was a jolly fine machine, and it was much used. The FE-2D was much the same, except that it had a Rolls engine. Uh, the very first one was a tragedy. Uh, it was being taken across to France to show, and um, it had a very high up war office staff officer who wanted to get over there quickly, and the pilot lost his way and took the whole outfit and landed it at Lille by mistake for Saint-Omer. And the Germans thanked us next day in their communique. This is the Bristol Scout. Rather a little sweetie, with an 80 closure engine. It did 90 flat out. It wasn't very much, but it was a very small aircraft, and it was ahead of its generation. It was very prone to go over on its back. You didn't land absolutely plumb into wind, and you can see that, that the undercarriage is a little narrow. When I investigated Barnwell's accident, some years afterwards, there in it, in his logbook, which was the most beautifully kept book, was an entry that on such and such a date in November 15, he had taken it over to the Central Flying School and handed it over to Lieutenant Brown. I may say he arrived and did two loops at naught feet, a shattering performance, and you know, 
when I totted up his logbook, he'd only done 438 hours altogether when he was killed. There were other magnificent aircraft from the Bristol Company in those days, not the least important, of course, is the Bristol Fighter. That had a wonderful history. Um, it had a Rolls Falcon engine which behaved in the most marvellous way. That is the ES-1 Experimental Scout Number 1 built by Vickers, known as the Vickers Bullet. It did 118 miles an hour. It had a 100 monoscope part engine. The trouble was you couldn't see anything out of it. It had a completely round fuselage and when you had got yourself down as low as possible to avoid the terrific blasts in the prop, because they didn't think of putting a windscreen on it, you could see nothing except about 10 miles each side. It made it very difficult to land and if of course you sat higher you had your head blown off. But it was quite fun. Again, the undercarriage was too narrow and it was very easy to turn it over. But only two were built. Now, of all the aircrafts of the Scout variety that I ever flew, that was the most lovely. The dear little Sopwith triplane. It had no vices. It did 110 miles an hour. It had 110 clergy engines. It was manoeuvrable and terribly easy to fly and I would think nothing of doing 15 turns of a spin in that machine. It had a movable empennage, by which I mean this could be raised in front. The leading edge of it raised or lowered so as to give you bigger speed or pull it back for landing. It's interesting that so many people in those days built triplanes. I didn't know it until I read a book by a young man in Haddingham who were fighting triplanes. There were tremendous lots were built. But I only knew of three at that time. This was just a sweetie. Another one was the Newport triplane with a backward staggered wing, which was very uncomfortable to fly, longitudinally unstable. And the other one was that amusing contraption with a caproni with three 200 fields. It was actually got over here under another pretext and um, Marsham Heath couldn't bear it. Marsham Heath was the test station in those days after the test work had gone from <coughs> Upaven to Marsham and um, Martlesham was the prototype testing and offeredness were the other part of the experimental work. That thing was then removed hastily to um, the communication flights at Hendon in the hopes that they would find a use for it. And I think they conveniently pranked it as an early opportunity. But people were not content with building triplanes. There, for instance, is the Armstrong Whitworth quadruplane. It was nothing like as nice to handle as the um, as the Sopwith, and um, aerodynamically it was a bit peculiar to fly. I don't think more than that one 
was ever built. De Havilland went on turning out aeroplanes. That is the BH-5. You see, it had a backward stagger so that the pilot could have a lovely view in front. As a matter of fact, it was so lovely that he couldn't see anything behind at all, because the top wing uh, shut out anybody diving on him from the rear, and you couldn't, of course, put your head round the corner because of the bottom wing, and he being, being attacked from the rear the other way. The one I flew vibrated very badly. It had a 110 Lerone engine, which was all right, but in any case, it wasn't a good aircraft. It was not put into production. But Havilland did make a very fine trainer. That's the DH-6. And you see the um, high camber, high lift wing, which gave you a very nice slow landing. And I think in 1917 uh, that hundreds of them were used in the RFC as trainers. Well, I was then moved to um, Farnborough to join number 70 squadron of Sopwith one and a half Strutters. There is B flight just before we left for France. One strut, a half a strut, hence the one and a half strutter. It was a 110 clergy engine, which was pretty reliable on the whole. It was a very nice aircraft, except that it was damn cold. The interesting person in that flight is that man standing next to me there. That is B.C. Hux. His ticket was number 91 of 1911 vintage. He was Oddly enough, the first man to do the double crossing of the channel. But I think he'd probably be best known to some of us old stagers by his adaptation of the old crosslit tender by putting a Christmas tree on the top of it and turned it into a most marvellous self-starter, engine starter. And it saved hundreds of man-hours pulling propellers over. Because you know, in those days, the only way you could start an engine was to pull the prop round to suck in, then you shouted out contact, the pilot yelled contact having switched on, and then you swung the prop. You hoped, goodness, the thing would fire. And when Hux introduced his starter, it really was a tremendous help, because in those days, engine starter on an aircraft, or as part of an aircraft, really hadn't got anywhere. This is another view. This is a single-seater, one-and-a-half strutter, and I put it on for this reason. The aircraft was a landmark in the history of the Royal Flying Corps, because it was the first one ever to have an interrupter gear for the gun. It was fitted with the Constantinesco gun gear, which enables the gun for the first time to be put directly forward so that it would fire between the propeller blades. 
Hitherto, you see, we'd only been able to use the Lewis gun. So it was marvellous now to be able to face your aircraft at an enemy. The one snag to it was, as you can see, perhaps, that the end of the gun here, with this ridiculous little uh, windscreen, which was only about a foot wide, with a little bit of leather around it, it was exactly one foot from your face when you were sitting right back. So that if you did stand on your nose and landing with a flat tire, or if you broke your undercarriage and you went on your nose, you were pretty certain to smash your face up. And it really was a pretty good snag. All the same, the Sopwist had a very fine record. And if it hadn't been that the dear old air staff out in France said, oh, here's a wonderful machine, and then sent us on four-hour jobs with exactly four hours petrol, and you had to remember that there might be a, a west wind. It was just too bad, the number we lost that way. But it really was a very fine aircraft. That was the way the gun, the Lewis gun, before that was fitted, if you wanted to, to fire forward. You could reach that one with some difficulty from your seat. It had to be mounted up there, of course, to fire over the top of the prop. And you can imagine that with an aircraft of that kind, this was a SPAD, I may say, the French SPAD, but uh, with the 200 uh, Hispano engine, it was pretty difficult replacing an ammunition drum. But that was absolutely nothing compared with the his predecessor in that squadron. This was um, 19 squadron, which had BE-12s and then changed to spares. BE-12, rather like the White Knight in Alice. There, you see, is your Lewis gun. It hinged about a point here, and you could pull it down into a vertical position to about there. You then reached up as far as you could against the blast of the winds of about 120 miles an hour in the old V12 and took the empty drum off and put it in its receptacle beside you and you took a full one from the other side and which was heavy against the wind replaced it. Then you had to push the blessed thing up again there and uh, Bob was your uncle. That, if you were in a scrap, was pretty difficult. But still, it was a good machine in many ways. You'll see how we carried uh, 212 pound bombs. Here's one, you see, and here's the other. And you also noticed the cute way that Farnborough arranged their fuel tanks. The main tank was in here. That from that, the petrol was pumped up into that one. And then from that, it ran down that side there to the carburetors of the gravity. All very simple, particularly if you had a bullet through both tanks. The gunner behind had a very good contraption known as the scarf ring. You see, the, your little seat 
the spring loaded and tipped up the moment you stood up and you were in that thing you could swing it round and you could raise your scarf ring up to vertical so that you could fire your gun in almost any attitude and particularly you could fire it over the side down at somebody coming in that direction. Well after a little period in hospital when I came back from France I was posted to Orford Ness and there the experimental work which used to be done at Upavon had been moved and amongst the experimental officers there was one B.M. Jones, later Professor of Aeronautics at Cambridge. We did lots of work on bomb sites again, bomb gear generally. Bombs themselves were tested out over on the shingle banks below Aldra. Gun sites and many of the star turn fighter pilots came to us from France to show us the latest, latest methods of uh, fighting so that we could do what they wanted with their equipment. People like Captain Ball, VC, Cudden, and those sorts came to us quite often. One of the experiments that B.M. Jones and I did was in connection with the then new phenomenon of blacking out. As the aircraft got faster and as one did smaller turning circles, this strange mist coming up over your eyes and then you passing out altogether gradually was something you just didn't understand. The medicals, of course, were interested in it, and so we got down to it. I used to fly the Sopwith triplane in do tight circles over a camera obscura in which Jones would plot my course. And he found that I could hold 4.5G for 7 seconds before passing out. Once or twice it was a little hazardous, but when I passed out, the dear little softly triplane gallantly recovered itself and brought me safely home. You don't stay out for long, though. Well, the staff were getting very interested in this and uh, a certain great man, General Branker, particularly wanted to know all about it. And so down he came to see us. I took him up in that DH-4. Um, I gave him a couple of pretty tight loops and was about to do a third when in a mirror which I used to carry, I used to have fixed, I think, on that strut. I suddenly discovered that there was nobody in the back seat. I hastily came down, uh, looking around in all directions to see if there was anybody in mid-air, and it wasn't until I was taxiing in that I saw two hands appear. And Branko said afterwards he knew all about it. One night, two of our pilots, Sombe and Holder, went up and uh, got a Zeppelin, which was disabled, about 15 miles away from Orford, a place called Leyston. 
I was absolutely frantic with anger because the CO wouldn't let me go off in the triplane. He said, go up in that in the dark, you'll break your neck. Well, just too bad. That was a photograph that I took early in the morning. Father Grimm. It's the Avro 329 twin engine machine and it stimulated interest in air staff because they were desperately anxious to bomb Berlin and there was no aircraft that had ever been made that would have got anywhere near Berlin. This one inspired them to sit up and take notice. And I was sent over to France with Leonard Bairstow and Goodman Crouch, I bet some of you remember those two, to evaluate a Caudron twin. It was a very nice aircraft. It, it might have got to Berlin with another tank but it certainly would never have got back. But I remember it well because in my stupidity I got pretty good raspberry, I suppose quite rightly, for looping it. And I was never quite sure whether it was because I'd looped a twin engine machine which just wasn't done according to the French, or whether it was because I did it damn sight too close to the Eiffel Tower. The aircraft which was finally built for the Berlin thing, of course, was the Handy Page V1500 with four 350-horse Rolls engines. It was ready about ten days before the armistice. There it was, one of them, at Martlesham Heath, and they never took off because the armistice came along, and so Berlin was spared that indignity until the next war. But it was a good aircraft, and it would have got there and back, if the winds hadn't been too strong. I was then posted for a tour of duty to the War Office, which shortly afterwards was to become the Air Ministry. I worked under one Professor Hopkinson, late Professor of Engineering at Cambridge, and he was then Major Hopkins, Hopkinson, and he was the DSR, Director of Scientific Research. My job was to coordinate all the prototype aircraft uh, flying at two stations, Martlesham Heath and the Isle of Grain. I'd hardly got there before this curious thing happened. That is a DH-9 with a hotted-up Lion engine in place of the usual BHP Puma. A certain Captain Lang did a climb to 30,500 feet, which was then world record. When he came down, a photographer said, Would you mind standing there, sir, and took his photograph. He managed to get certain particulars and the next day the photograph and the particulars were in the press. There was a terrible row. Lang was put in arrest immediately uh, because this thing was on the secret list. Uh, the war office then went quite mad and proceeded to build a fence right along one side of the road which divided the domestic side of Martlesham Heath from the hangars 
on the Erdogan side. And they madly built this wretched six-foot fence, seven-foot fence. Sierra Gosham was on the telephone half the day trying to get it stopped, but it wasn't so easy. And finally, it had to be the CAS himself who gave the word to stop. Now, it so happened that at that time, Office of Works, or as we used to call them Works and Bricks, were divided into two. One of them built things, and the other one pulled them down. And it was an extraordinary thing when we got that thing, uh, that uh, fence stopped, that for three days before we did it, there was the party at one end of that fence building it madly, and the party at the other end of the fence pulling it down. <laughs> Anyhow, that was the DH9 in question. There was one other thing of interest. At about that time, there was an engine called the ABC Dragonfly. And I don't suppose many people have heard of it. I know one person here tonight who will have heard of it, because he was at Martlesham at the time. It was a very difficult thing to cope with, because it very seldom ran for three hours. And I don't think anybody there knew, and I at top end didn't know, that the War Office had committed itself very heavily indeed to the manufacture of, of this engine. And I'm perfectly certain that if it hadn't been for the armistice coming along, it would have had a remarkably uh, awful effect upon uh, our air effort because they just wouldn't fly for more than two or three hours, and three hours, I think, was about the maximum. The other station I had to look after, Isle of Grain, introduced me to another entirely new form, as far as I was concerned, of aviation. This was flying boats, seaplanes. Now, if we go back a bit to the Dardanelles, that is HMS Slinger, the first catapult. And from that was slung harmless aircraft like the Sopwith Pup. Now sometimes I think they put, they did try once to put a, a, a float machine off, but it was um, too much for it and it went down onto the water. The slinger would go alongside another aircraft carrier, if you like to call it that, called the Ben McCree, which had a hangar way aft in which were stored a number of seaplanes and a few pups. And there is a short 184 seaplane. That was used tremendously for reconnaissance work over the North Sea, and it was. That type was used, I believe, in the Dardanelles. And you see that it was not really very drafty, because look, there's two jaunty fellows with their ordinary hats on. That had um, a Sunbeam 240 engine. That is a Ferry 22, which was called the Atlanta. It also had a Sunbeam engine, the Maori, which I think was about uh, 235 horse. It was very good, very reliable, and that and the short shared the reconnaissance work at that time, particularly up and down our coast, the North Sea. But 
Gradually, the seaplanes were giving way to flying boats, and here was one of the early ones, the Norman Thompson, single-engined. Uh, it was very nice, very comfortable, and it was at least not so cold to fly because it, it had a very well-built-up partition in front. I found that was, I flew that one, and it was very nice. Uh, the bigger flying boats I was passenger several times in, but I never flew one. This, for instance, was known as the America. It was rather like the F-boats which were built under Commander Port's supervision at Felixstowe at that time. The H-12, this is, known as the America, because the earlier one came over from America, the Curtis people brought it over, I think. And the F-boats, the F-2A and the F-3 and the F-5 were almost like that, except a bit bigger. They did long uh, reconnaissance work, long distance work. Port went mad occasionally. Uh, for instance, I mean, he put up what was known as the Port's Baby, or the Fury, Felix Doe Fury, uh, with uh, several Rolls Eagle engines, which caused frightful rumpus, because he should have had them for that. I don't know what happened to it. It did once fly, I believe, but I think only once by the time the armistice came along. Blackburns built lovely flying boats afterwards. Saunders Row built lovely boats, the Southern class. Shorts built lovely ones of the Sunderland class, from which the Empire boats came, which Imperial Airways used just before the war. And unfortunately, this rather put a stop to it. That is the ill-fated Cavalier which came down between Baltimore and Bermuda and was lost, with uh, three people lost, and there were the ten people who were in the water for over nine hours before they were picked up. And um, I'm afraid that my report was rather a drastic one on that accident, but it did have a very good effect because the powers that be just had to look into the question of carburetor icing, which they'd carefully avoided as far as possible before that. And the safety arrangements were improved enormously uh, in respect of what had to be carried uh, in the way of lifeboats, life-saving jackets and so on. Uh, there were only three life-saving jackets in that aircraft, you know, ten people on board. I think it's very pathetic that there are no longer any flying boats. I suppose in all the world there aren't any. I don't know. The last we had over here were the princesses, and it was pathetic to see them at the end of Southampton Water, cocooned for a long time. One quickie over that. When the first princess was about to be launched, large gang of press came down to cows to see this, and a wind got up, so that it just didn't happen. In the local that evening, in a local, um, in Yarmouth, the other end of the island, 
I saw John Booth, who was the other pilot with Tyson, and I called out to him, John, what happened to the princess today? And conversation rather dropped at the word princess. And um, he called out across to me, Oh, we let her down into the water and got her bottom wet. And then it was too windy, so we pulled her up again. And it was surprising the number of eyebrows that went up. Apart from many fights which took place in those days about who should have falcon engines and who should have eagle engines and so on, there were also fights about deck landing. The Sopwith Pup was used in HMS Furious, which was the first carrier. She could take off all right on foredeck, and she could land all right, but she nearly always ran into the rope screen, which had to be carried in Furious because of all the superstructure being in the middle of the ship. And it wasn't until the carriers of the kind like Argus and Hermes were built with the superstructure on one side and with the rest of the on deck that they really got over that problem. In the meantime, if aircraft came back which, and had to land in the drink beside the ship, the, that ingenious contrivance was used. That shows it actually inflated, of course, with bags. I think it was CO2 bottle we inflated them with. I remember, that's Curtis. I remember um, a Bristol fighter sitting in the water for three quarters of an hour with, and, and both the, the pilot and his uh, co-member were taken off just before she sank so that they, they had their uses. After this tour of duty at the war office, I was moved to Biggin Hill which was the instrument design establishment. And there we were working on various things like the Reed and Seagrist turn indicator. We were trying to improve communication, air to ground and ground to air, and air to air. And uh, we were also working on the little Queen Bee target. I remember a deputation of Japanese coming down. This would be about 1920. They were shown everything they wanted to look at until we got to the end and then they said, oh, but we haven't seen the Queen Bee and that's really what we wanted to see. And the CO, one Grenfell, gritted his teeth and said he was sorry but that was on the secret list and he was not able to show them. And the Jap chief staff officer said, oh, what a pity. He said, you see, you're using the telephone relay and so are we. But we use it rather better than you do. We have got to about 15 miles, and you can still only go to five with safety. We thought if we could cooperate, we should do so much better together. And now, of course, we shall have to ask our people for some uh, more money for our secret service, shouldn't we? No, that is very naive. Then I had a tour of duty in Iraq. That was our aircraft in 84 Squadron. It was the DH-9A with a Liberty engine, and a very successful aircraft it was. I'm not going into any dissertation about Iraq, except to say that dear old Boom Trenchard was dead right, that the RAF with six squadrons had a depot, and a couple of companies of armored cars could police that country, jolly side better than the army ever could, 
with what was very nearly a division of men at the time of the insurrection. It was an interesting command, and I enjoyed it, except that there were no ladies allowed out there. From there, I went to Egypt and uh, was in charge of the engine repair shops at the depot at Abu Kir. Unfortunately, DH9A, that chap, let me down by I had an, an engine cut on takeoff. The aerodrome there had the ruins of Canopus on one side, the sea just beyond it, a village at each end of it, and a railway line running through the middle of it. And so an engine cut at about 80 feet wasn't too funny, and I pranged her in the village street. So I was sent home with rather a badly mashed up face. But I was then posted back to all places Uphaven, and to command the new fighter station there after the Central Flying School had been moved away to Wittering. One of the interesting things that happened while I was there, that was in 1927, the Princess Lohenstein Wertheim wanted to be the first person to fly the Atlantic East-West. And uh, her aircraft came, which was a Fokker with a Bristol engine. Minchin was the captain, who was an old school friend of mine. His ticket number was 419. Hamilton was his second pilot. And after waiting for over a week for weather, with a lot of very tarsome press people in the mess, one morning we heard that she was coming, they got a good weather report. At six o'clock in the morning, along she came, bolt upright in the back seat of a Daimler, hiccuping gladly, with the Archbishop of Cardiff beside her in his canonicals. A lot of holy water was dropped on her and on the aeroplane, and after a very hazardous start, they took off, and uh, they were seen, I think, crossing the coast of Ireland, and that was the end of that. It was all rather tragic. I remember her, the sweet person that she was. She had a marvellous blue, dark blue velvet, or suede, I beg your pardon, coat and breeches, and lovely blue top, uh, uh, knee-high uh, boots, and she had lots and lots of hat boxes. And I think the only thing I asked her about was what were all the boxes for, and she said they were all the different hats that she was going to use at every different place that she went to in the States when she got there, because she knew she was going to be fated everywhere. I may say that the first crossing east-west was done in 1927 by Two Frenchmen, Cost and Maurice Bellant, who is an old friend, and not as a recent edition of Petit Larousse had it by Lindbergh and a friend. I'm not going to talk very much about accidents tonight. I haven't talked much about them, but I'll just show you one photograph which I think is one of the most remarkable ever taken. That is of an aeroplane actually breaking up in the air. You'll see the uh, fuselage is in the middle. This is the tailplane down here, which was rotating at the time, and the engine had gone out ahead like a bomb. And the man on the ground who took a photograph and didn't know that he'd got that photograph until he developed it. Now my time is up. 
I could have talked a lot more. What are my present feelings, now that I'm an old man, about aviation, having seen of it all these long years? I find it awfully difficult to be with it. I don't understand how it was that somebody advised the minister that the Concorde project was a must. Maybe it was, right? But I don't know. It does seem to me extraordinary that our share in that, or that is to say the one aircraft that is being produced this side of the water, will have cost about 250 million pounds. If you have the decompression at 50,000 feet or over, it's going to be unfunny. We don't know yet what's going to happen about sonic bang and about noise generally, but I know that the British public and the French public both got up on their hind legs so strongly about noise that they stopped us hooting our motor cars after 11 o'clock at night. And I should think very likely a few concours will cause some trouble. Its uses, as far as we're concerned, you'll get to America in three hours instead of six. And I suppose the next generation will have to get used to saying to their friends when they get there, do you know, when I left London Airport tomorrow morning, it was snowing. But it will be able to, to be like that. If the accident rate doesn't come down in inverse proportion to the amount of flying that takes place, Bo Lundberg, the Swede, has prophesied that by 19... well, say by the turn of the century, there will be 25,000 to 30,000 casualties every year in flying. Well, the present rate is still, I believe, about one death per hundred million flying passenger miles. And I don't think that it's come down at all in the last five years. So, as far as I'm concerned, give me the Morris Farm and Shorthorn every time. Good night. Well, Sir Vernon, I'm sure we've all enjoyed it. I certainly have. And I've learned a lot of back history also. One thing I'd like to assure you is that in recent technical books, at least one of them, that question of how much Lindemann had to do with spinning has been put right. I might turn to other things. It was very nice to learn something about the very early life of Tizard at our Pup Haven, which has been rather hidden and was not mentioned much in Collar's lecture, which had been published in the Society's Journal. And the other thing was nice to hear of some of the older people like one of your predecessors as Chief Inspector of Accidents, Coburn. One of the nicest men I ever had to do anything with, and who was so capable of picking on the thing that mattered in an accident. And he told me one day, he said, you know, this is the fifth time I've been called back from the country to become Inspector of Accidents. I think with you, sir, they kept you on so long that finally you retired, but you didn't go into the country in the meanwhile. 
Now, I mustn't talk too much about these old things which interest me as well as our lecturer. Now, would you, could you bear for a few questions? Now then, who would like to ask some questions? In particular, I would love, I'm sure a lot of us would love to know how they got the picture of the German observer about the jump and the kind of What sort of foresight? Did you have a camera on strut balance in the rock or something on the side? Fired by the same We were working at the time, even as early as that, on a camera gun. And that was one which was taken with that with a camera gun, but with no foresight. So that instead of getting what I usually had in the camera gun, what it was used for, for fighting and with, a, with a, a, a ring and bead sight, so that you've got your aircraft coming in and so that you could de determine whether or no you would have shot him. This was just with nothing at all, but it was um, worked with the uh, with the CC, with, with a... Uh, a a trigger on the um, control column so that when one pressed the button to shoot or in this case with Laprea rockets to fire them off it took the photographs at the same moment so in fact it was a few seconds before those rockets hit the blessed thing <laughs> I would like just to tell you one quickie which I missed uh, Lindemann was a very odd character I think, with all respect to him, he had a dead cat at the bottom of his soul. But he could be nice sometimes. Uh, dear old Henry Tizard didn't quarrel with him, although they used to have little firework displays every now and then. But towards the end of 18, one day... B.M. Jones and I went into Bush House Restaurant for a quickie lunch. There was Lindemann sitting at table with Henry Tizard. So we went and joined them. When we got there, they were getting a little red in the face and prefixing all their remarks with, well, of course. And really what the argument was is the most economical way of packing a box of oranges. When we left, they were still at the table, but this time they were getting on with their newly invented game of three-dimensional chess. to pulling four and a half G, what in fact was the ultimate strength of the aircraft? The ultimate strength, the design strength of the Sopwith was three G uh, in upload. And it was not all that good the other way up. I did one day break it. Uh, it had, I think I write, the center section was so, and it had two little collars at the top, those two wires down. And I heard a bang, and the whole of the thing wobbled about like this. When I landed, one of those had broken. That was doing tight turning circles. And after that, I did it in the DH-4 instead, and I don't think it was much stronger. <laughs> but we didn't think about those things in those days. And we hadn't any parachutes and so on. We just did it. Well, Sir Vernon...
in thanking you again for your most interesting lecture, I should like to make one odd remark. And that is, I don't know which quality you have best. Whether it is your ability to fly any machine or to bring out memories from your brain. I think your memory is wonderful. Thank you, sir, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.